Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our liberties here at the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house Tuesday, August 3rd, the date that Christopher Columbus sailed out to that long yonder to discover the Western Front. Where is our front to discover? Where are we going to set sail for liberty? Where are we going to go for liberty? We, we, we warn about mandates and, and vaccine passports. They're upon us. They are upon us. They're being mandated everywhere. Three Republican judges yesterday on a panel of the Seventh Circuit sided with the lower court judge. Yep, Jacobson, Jacobson. Yeah, we're, we're going back to uh, Dred Scott, Plessy v. Ferguson. No problem. I joked around yesterday. I said, hey, Republican judges finally repealed Roe v. Wade. Just for COVID fascism, of course. So we have nowhere to turn. You think about, there, there's an article today that's very timely for our special guest, Pierre Corey. We're going to have him on to discuss ivermectin and treatment is an article in Jerusalem Post. Israeli scientist says COVID-19 could be treated for under a dollar a day. And, you know, he goes into ivermectin. He did his own study on it and found it to be amazing in terms of just truncating the period of time of viral re- replication. And he's like, it's just unbelievable. It's it, No one wanted to publish his study, of course, the censorship. And you think about the amount of money we mail out. We're mailing out child tax credits and, and unemployment benefits and just the, the mental health, the fiscal health, the physical health, the stuff we've done to the world. But they refuse to treat this virus. They refuse to do what works. So we're going to talk about that with our special guest today. And speaking of treatment with something that works... If you have trouble seeing, a lot of people aren't really into glasses and they never wind up using them, but they really need them. But if you get the Ghost Specs lenses from Rodenstock, from our buddies at Better Spectacles, you will actually love those glasses. Um, Rodenstock is a 144-year-old company that's the world's gold standard with over 500 patents on eyeglasses. They specialize in difficult prescriptions, astigmatisms, those who experience problems with progressives. They their ghost specs lenses actually use uh, 7,000 points in the eye from over a million patients to really hone in on the technology to give you better energy, no neck strain, the ability to see up to 40% better. So for you guys in the audience, go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative to schedule a teleoptical appointment today. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to get a vax. You don't have to uh, get a, a mask. It's uh, it's not an online company, but they do have tele-optical appointments, which are great. Then you get your prescription, and then you can get 61% off their lenses plus free 
handcrafted rodenstock frames. Just visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative. So, folks, we're now at the point where, according to the Seventh Circuit, a public college can deny entry unless someone takes an experimental shot. But the Tenth Circuit ruled, I'm not kidding you, the same week, it was a couple days ago, I guess, that a private business must host a website for a gay like event or something, something that violates the conscience of the owner. You see where this is headed. And again and again, we have no leadership. Find me where you can go in America where you are truly fully free from COVID fascism, meaning you could attend your job, your kids could attend college. Not really. I mean, personally, I'm not at a stage of life where I have anyone that is affected by the mandate yet, but most people are in some way. That's the reality. And where could we even go for treatment? Where could we go for treatment? We're, we're, we're facing this false dichotomy now where you either get a virus that, frankly, was very much li- likely funded in part by our government, and you either get an experimental vaccine that they themselves are saying at best at last short-term And the more this virus mutates like the flu, it's more like you're getting last year's flu shot, albeit with a much greater degree of risk from side effects and so many long-term unknowns. Or you get the virus, and if you you have certain conditions in particular, you could see that long-term inflammatory reaction coming a mile away, seven to ten days later, and nobody will prescribe you anything. That truly is the scandal of the time, and I'm not going to move off of this because I really think there is a need to push this in the with the governors, the red state legislators. But unfortunately, I don't have I don't have much help. You know, as much as conservatives like to talk about censorship, they themselves engage in it. Washington Examiner is now going to require vaccination for all of its own employees. Really. I mean, this is unbelievable. If you were to require everyone prophylax and ivermectin, now, it's not constitutional, just like requiring a mask and vaccine isn't, but you'd actually be following the science much better. So that's really where I want to head with this very special guest today that have been waiting a long time to have him on. So folks, the date was December 8th, 2020. And I was watching a committee hearing at the Senate Homeland Security hearing chaired by Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, like I watch a lot of hearings, except typically when I watch a hearing, I watch it through a very partisan political lens. Obviously, you know, like most people, I'm going to come in with my preconceived notions. Um, I'm going to like the witnesses that that agree with me. And, you know, I'm ready to go to battle with the ones that I disagree with. But this hearing was a little bit different. It wasn't even about what has become the political aspects of COVID and the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions. There was a witness, Dr. Pierre Corey, I never heard of him, and he gave this impassioned testimony about a drug I had never heard of, most people never heard of, that he felt is not just the key to saving lives in the ICU, but to actually giving outpatient and preventing the flood on the hospitals, which was really the entire impetus 
for this so-called flatten the curve was to make sure that we don't have a run on the hospitals where they're overrun and we can't treat the patients we need to treat. And, you know, I never heard another side to the story. So it sounded really sound. This is a pulmonologist, an intensivist. And I figured, wow, this is now going to become the standard of care. And it's going to be a game changer. This, if you remember, was at the beginning of the winter spread. We've already gone through, you know, at least two waves in most areas, despite the mass, despite the lockdown, despite everything. But then, lo and behold, it just died. It died in terms of the government, the NIH, CDC, the media. You never heard about it. And then I saw that the video of Dr. Corey posted by the Senate Homeland Security Committee was taken down on YouTube. And I was thinking to myself, I've never seen committee testimony taken down. I mean, this wasn't even posted by the individual. It was posted by the Senate committee. And I was like, wow, there must really be something there that they don't want us to know about. And ever since then, we've really been pounding away on a lot of Dr. Corey's work, some others, not just about ivermectin, but about the notion that we've overturned every stone in dealing with this virus, except for the most obvious, which is treating it and treating it early, understanding the cytokine storm, understanding the pulmonary inflammation that is bound to come with a lot of people that we could see it a mile away. 17 months later, we know how this behaves. And why are we not trying to actually treat it? Why are we still telling people, just go home, isolate, and if you can't breathe, go into the hospital, and we got some remdesivir for you at 3000 a pop. So I've been trying to get Dr. Corey on for a while, and today is our lucky day. Dr. Corey, thanks so much for joining us today. Daniel, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Good to be here. And, and folks, by the way, you could go to covidcriticalcare.com is the website. He's now president of the FLCCC. This is Frontline COVID Critical Care, where they have now put out a protocol, which is what we all kind of expected from the government months ago, except the government doesn't have this. So, Dr. Corey, can we start from the beginning? You're working in the ICU in a lot of different places, um, treating COVID patients. You're a pulmonologist, which is really the bread and butter of this virus. How did you discover ivermectin, and could you explain just in layman's terms the mechanisms of action, how it helps against the virus? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when we saw this thing coming, you know, we could see it. You know, you heard about Wuhan. Everyone thought it would just stay there. But then, you know, Lombardy happened and, you know, Seattle. You know, I was the chief of the critical care service at the University of Wisconsin, and you know, once it became real, uh, meaning that the threat that it was going to come was real, uh, and then New York started to happen. Where I was, I mean, we just started to plan and prepare. Um, now, I, I just want to start off. Ivermectin was never in our protocols last year. It was only, only we only adopted it for treatment in late October, early November of 2020. So it was far into the pandemic when we kind of identified ivermectin as effective. But what we started out with is we just tried to figure out how to treat it in the ICU because the ICUs were over overrun with people running out ventilators because you couldn't get these patients off. And the disease was so bizarre, meaning most people who get critically ill, right? So I'm an ICU specialist. They generally adopt a trajectory, which is it will start to improve slowly and you can get them off of ventilators within some you know, days, sometimes a week, or they will continue to decline and die. You know, I've, I've had ICUs where, you know, 20% of my patients die. But here, 
they were just not getting better and they weren't getting worse. And so they were filling up ICUs and we were running out of ventilators. And basically we started out, our first protocol was called Math Plus. Um, and all our protocols can be on our website. I just wanted to correct. Our website is actually COVID19criticalcare.com or easy. It's mm. flccc.net. That's the easiest one. But our first protocol was Math Plus. And that was centered around corticosteroids. Um, along with a, a number of other medicines that we thought were uh, effective. And so we were using our hospital protocol, uh, which did not have ivermectin in it early on. And I, I want to point out, I don't know if you know this, Daniel, but I was I testified in the Senate back in May of 2020 at a time. And I at that time, I called on the world to use corticosteroids. And I did it at a time when every national and international healthcare agency had on their protocols, do not use corticosteroids, like dexamethasone or anything. Wow. And so I got I got really criticized for that. Uh, people thought I was going to cause harm. I was in, you know, uh, let's just say some disagreements at work uh, with a lot of my leaders. And I, everyone pushed back on me in that. And then guess what? Seven weeks later, Oxford University completes their big, large randomized controlled trial and corticosteroids becomes the standard of care overnight. So like ivermectin is not my, uh, as they say, not my first rodeo uh, to find a, a drug that works uh, that's not understood by the rest of, um, you know, the medical system. So that, that was May. That was math plus. And then what we what happened was our group, right, which we're, we're like some of the most highly credentialed doctors in our specialty, probably between us, we have almost 2000 peer reviewed publications. We've all have had independent, very well-known contributions to the field. Uh, Dr. Marek is world famous. Uh, I'm very well-known uh, for being a pioneer in what's called point-of-care ultrasound. Umberto Maduri is, is one of the world experts in, in the use of corticosteroids. Uh, and so, like, we're really very well-known and very, very accomplished doctors. And so our protocol, we thought people would listen to or follow our protocols, at least try our protocols, but they were really fought against. And, and then what happened was we followed all the data. So we followed trials, followed trials, followed trials, and lots of different therapeutics were failing. Um, the randomized controlled trials for numbers of different stuff that was being used, all were negative. And then, you know, Dr. Marek, you know, who's sort of our intellectual lead, he started to see a signal around ivermectin, which is this small trial looked positive, like quite positive, then another one, then, then another one. And it just started to like, really line up in a way that we hadn't seen line up around other uh, therapeutics. And so um, he put a, a lecture. It's interesting. He did his first lecture on ivermectin was, I think, mid-October. He put it up on YouTube. And in that lecture, he claimed that it could end the pandemic. Uh, since then, the evidence has only gotten stronger, like wickedly stronger. Um, but he was really precocious at that time. It was I, I did the review article. I put that up on a preprint early November. Uh, it was published in April. Um, our review and multiple other review articles now have also found the same conclusion. So, um, so that's that's how ivermectin. Um, that's how we became kind of world experts on ivermectin. Wow. So, so we're going to go through some of your treatment cocktails, uh, particularly focused on early treatment. And I just want to say this, this this segment is sponsored by Gabby Insurance. You know, when we talk about uh, the system wanting you to pay more and get less, it's not just true with medical care. It's true with uh, a lot of things, particularly insurance. Gabby has a terrific system where you can go online and, you know, you go to Gabby.com slash Daniel, and they will give you a comparison upfront for homeowners and car insurance. 
what you will pay for probably about 40 of the top different insurance providers, and they give it to you right there. They don't give you a runaround. I've done it. It took me a couple minutes. I had a really good plan for many years, so typically they save you about $900. They saved me about $400, but it is well worth it. I guarantee you, you are likely overpaying. You need to run this from time to time absolutely free. They don't sell your information. They don't harass you. Um, you get that email within a couple minutes, boom, lined up there um, right in front of you. What are the best ones so you know how to save money, where to go to save money. Put your policy to the test like I did. Get a better insurance with Gabby. It's totally free to check. Again, it's gabi.com slash Daniel, gabby.com slash Daniel. Now, speaking of looking at a nice, well-presented way of saving money, but more importantly, saving lives. So I'm looking at the IMAS protocol here um, from the organization. Dr. Pierre Corey is a co-founder along with Dr. Merrick, and I'm looking at the protocol here, and I'm looking at prevention, an early outpatient protocol. And to me, I think this has been the debate a lot of people don't realize. You mentioned that this virus is a beast in the ICU, and that's what really flummoxed everyone. Yep. But isn't it true that it starts out like a virus like anything else, hence most people get you know, sore throat or some of these you know, cold-like, flu-like symptoms, and often it will stay that way for a week, maybe even a little bit longer than that. And for some people, hey, that's it, done, fine. But other people, then they get this pulmonary inflammation and their blood oxygen levels drop, they can't breathe, and it goes downhill from there. So isn't it true that we've been sitting for months, we're, we're testing like a bunch of hyenas, and yet we're not reaping the one important benefit of of testing which is early detection and therefore you could treat it i'm looking at your thing and almost everything here prophylaxis especially is over the counter except for ivermectin which you know you wonder if it should be over the counter could you discuss a little bit if people in my audience say look some got the vaccine some didn't but either way we now know you could still get it and they test positive you're saying they shouldn't go home and pray for the best. No. <clears throat> no, I mean, you know, it's still considered by the health system that there is no treatment. And, and it's, it's absolutely bizarre because if you look at our protocol, every component has a significant amount of evidence base. Ivermectin has an overwhelming evidence base. Um, but the others also have good pathophysiologic rationale and, and lots of supporting evidence. And so our protocols, first of all, they're combination therapy protocols because this disease is really complex. It has a number of different pathophysiologic pathways. And so we try to hit at, at a number of them at the same time. And like you pointed out, these are safe, cheap, over-the-counter uh, medicines that you can use, uh, you know, again, with the exception of ivermectin. And so... Um, it's wickedly effective. How do I know that? I've been treating people around the country for eight months, myself and a huge network of, now I have a global network of colleagues and people that we've talked to in many other countries um, who also do early treatment center around ivermectin. And I've, I've yet to meet a doctor who's adopted it in their practice and said, hey, Dr. Corey, it didn't help any of my patients. It's, it's, it's bizarre. I've not heard that from one. I've heard plenty of people who say it doesn't work, but none of them have used it in their practice. Wow. And, and when you say use in their practice, you're not talking about people at a critical stage in an ICU. You're talking about use it early 
um, and then it preempts that inflammatory reaction in most yeah, cases. Yeah, so let's talk about how. Uh, yeah, why don't, why don't I go over when when we use it? So it's actually it's actually really helpful in all phases. The the most profound impacts are actually in prevention. So for people who haven't gotten COVID, if you take ivermectin weekly, it prevents uh, the contraction of of COVID. Uh, for instance, I've been on ivermectin for eight eight months now. I take it every week and I haven't gotten COVID and I am constantly around COVID. Um, and again, that's only one example, but um, you know, large cohorts of healthcare workers at different centers in India, as well as Argentina, have been prophylaxing with ivermectin for many, many, many months and very few get COVID. Like you're talking low single digits will get COVID. Um, and so it's highly protective in the uh, in, in preventing illness. It's also really effective as an early treatment. So you take it upon first symptoms. That's another approach is that I, I my dream is for the world <laughs> and the country to have ivermectin in the cupboard and that you could take it upon first symptoms if you're not already prophylaxing with it, take it upon first symptoms. And especially the earlier you take it, the more effective it is. So if someone takes it on first symptoms, generally within 24, 36 hours, they're feeling largely almost completely better. Um, the later you take it, the harder it is to recover. Uh, and also dosing is important. So we're increasing our dosing now, um, especially with this Delta variant. I'm using higher doses and, and long. So I, I get a ton of questions on that. Can you just briefly, and again, everyone has to ask their own doctor, but if you could just go over the basic dosage and timing. Sure. Um, and do you take it you know, with a meal, without a meal? What, yeah. what type of deal? So, the, uh, so first of all, the standard dose that it was approved for, for uh, let's say parasitic disease, and I, I, maybe your audience wants to hear what ivermectin is and why we use it. Uh, I could just sure. say really briefly. So it's a well-known uh, anti-parasitic drug. It really er eradicates some really important parasites. Uh, it, it really transformed the health status of huge portions of the globe. Uh, and the discoverers won the Nobel Prize because of this medicine, because it literally eradicated these really disfiguring uh, parasitic diseases um, in multiple continents. And so it's been actually distributed across continents to the billions of doses. It's wickedly safe. I shouldn't say wickedly safe. It's just really safe. Uh, so safe that it, it's often given without a prescription and it's given in public health distribution programs. And so um, that's its anti-parasitic function. But about 10 years ago, and this is what people don't understand, 10 years ago, they started testing ivermectin against viruses in the lab. And it was showing in lab studies, Zika, dengue, West Nile, HIV, influenza, ivermectin was effective. And then they showed it against SARS-CoV-2 last April. There's one bench study where they also showed it was effective in the in the sort of the test tube. And then people started using it clinically. So it's an antiparasitic, but it has really profound antiviral properties. And so um, we think that it's I think its main mechanism. We don't we're not totally clear on the exact mechanisms. There's about eight different mechanisms that we think are in play. To me, the most profound one is it binds tightly to the spike protein. And that's why I think its most um, effectiveness is in prevention, because I think it binds to the spike protein and it prevents entry into the cell. And so that's why it's a good preventative. And so, um, so but it also interrupts replication and that's why it works as an early outpatient. The other thing is it also has numerous anti-inflammatory properties. So going back to your question, it's good in prevention. It's good as an antiviral in early outpatient, and it's really good as an anti-inflammatory in those f fortunate minor unfortunate minority who develop what we call the pulmonary phase and you know get need oxygen and get sick and go to the hospital. We use ivermectin there as well. 
And then lastly, uh, this is where the story gets almost, uh, I would say it's almost unbelievable, this story, but we have found it to be phenomenally effective in long-haul COVID. And so we have a protocol on our website called iRecover, <clears throat> which we developed with about five other groups um, based on their experience and what drugs that they've known that worked in, in, in long haul. So any of your listeners out there who are suffering from long haul, uh, go to our iRecover protocol. And then even in post-vaccine injuries. So a lot of people have, you know, who felt that I shouldn't say a lot of people, but they're, you know, a minority of people have really uh, not done well with the vaccines and we've gotten them better with ivermectin. And there's well, you're, you're saying it binds to the spike protein. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense Absolutely. that it's, it's the, some of the same symptoms. Absolutely. You got it 100%. So, so, so again, back to the dosage, um, yes. if, if people want to take it, um, prophylactically, is it, is it once a week? Yes. So once a week. So, uh, it's, it's, we take, basically we do a loading dose, which is a dose. Let's say you start today, you take a dose today, repeat one in 48 hours. And then from then on, you just take it once a week. Um, we used to have it every two weeks, uh, because we were just weren't sure about the weekly thing. We didn't really have, you know, a good precedent for it. We we're being cautious, but, um, and the trial showed that even monthly it was somewhat effective, um, or, or fairly effective. So we chose every two weeks, but we've since changed cause we had some breakthrough infections, but I have not heard of one on the weekly dose, uh, since we've gone to that. And my colleagues in Argentina who really pioneered that protocol in over 1200, uh, healthcare workers, they have only had a couple of breakthroughs, but those were in, uh, healthcare workers who either missed a dose or weren't taking a sufficient dose. So anyway, that's how we do it for prevention. Um, and so it's 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, so like for, you know, a 70 kilogram, um, male it would be like 15 milligrams. 15 milligrams. Okay. So, uh, so what I'm seeing, I'm getting emails from people it seems like they're being advised. I'm seeing five milligrams, three milligrams. That's that's too too little, you know, right? I think they should re they should consult our protocols and really be clear that they're on the right dose. It's not that hard to calculate. You know, um, the the tablets come in three milligram tablets. Uh, so generally, mm. you would take 12, 15, 18, whatever your weight is. I'm I'm uh, I have more weight than a seventy kilogram male, so I actually take uh, twenty one milligrams a week. So, um, so isn't that seven tablets? Yes. They're tiny little. Okay. But again, I guess it's once, once a week. And, and again, there's other, other elements on this protocol and, and, and you guys could go to protocols at the top of the website, COVID19criticalcare.com, or again, you could just uh, type in a search engine, FLCCC, you'll, you'll certainly see this come up. The post ICU management, it's funny. I had a friend of mine who's a fellow talk show host. Um, you know, she's 71, very thin woman, female, you know, didn't have a problem with it, but her husband, <clears throat> who was actually a few years younger, had the serious cytokine storm. They said he was going to die, wouldn't make it. They got an ivermectin and, um, you know, the infectious disease doctor comes in, really yells at them, puts them down for using yep. it. Mind you, it's not like they were offering anything else. That's what's yep. so bizarre about it. And, you know, they're saying it's the bottom of the ninth inning. He uses it with, I'm not kidding you, within 24 hours, he's discharged. And she calls me up and I said, wait a minute, this is not the end of the story. you got to go look at their post-ICU management protocol. There's a lot going on there. I can guarantee you they're not going to give you anything. So you're saying this is very important also just in the recovery and the ensuing weeks. Yeah, so, well, 
Not, not, not necessarily. So the duration that we treat. So, so again, for prevention, we covered, but also what's really important about prevention is we generally uh, advise people who are at high risk. Now with this Delta variant, you know, even young people are getting sick now. So our, you know, our view of who's at high risk of complications for getting COVID is probably widened. Um, but what's equally important is if someone gets COVID in the household, <clears throat> Everybody in the household should take two doses of ivermectin once today and repeat in 48 hours. Those trials, there was one randomized control trial where they did that and they had to stop it early because in the households where they gave everyone ivermectin, only 7% of those household members got COVID, whereas in the control group, 58% got COVID. And they saw this just wow. huge discrepancy. They had to ethically stop the trial early. That's how effective it was. So, so post exposure is key because you don't want to spread it to the household. And we got to, we got to, we got to tamp down this pandemic. It's going nuts again. So, and and it, and again, it's not like they're offering anything else that really is working. I mean, they've thrown everything at it except for early treatment. Yep. Um, so, why is it that the WHO? I saw yesterday the Malaysian arm of the WHO. Um, they're running a clinical trial on several drugs. They're finally realizing the need to get into the treatment side of this, not this false choice of either you die or don't get it, or maybe the vaccine and don't get it. But then if you do get it, we have nothing for you. But surprisingly, ivermectin is not being included in that trial. What's the deal with that? So I can't, I can't explain, uh, well, I've been a very, very uh, close student observing the behavior of these public health agencies. I can't really explain their <laughs> behavior. The, the, the one benign explanation might be, and they should have announced this because it is bizarre they didn't include it in their trial. It might be because uh, Oxford or in the UK, they're doing a big national trial on ivermectin. And also there's um, – uh, a trial funded by philanthropists um, in Brazil and also in Canada on ivermectin. So maybe they feel it's already being studied in a large trial. Uh, so that could be the benign explanation. But um, but the rest of the behavior on ivermectin is so bizarre and actually quite sinister um, that uh, I don't know what their motivations are, truly. Wow. Now, do you feel that once you've discovered a pretty broad mechanism of action – uh, that's antiviral, anti-inflammatory from ivermectin, could it m be promising maybe to be used against some other things? For example, uh, generally for kids, you know, this is not a big deal, so you know, most people don't like to treat it. But, you know, RSV, for example, could be very serious among kids. It's really spreading RSV. There's different theories behind it. It's up um, a lot, particularly in the South now. It's kind of mixing in there. There's a lot of RSV. Is there any promise there? So that's like my favorite question because, uh, you know, as a physician and as someone who does research, I think it's 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 hugely promising as a broad antiviral. And so I look forward to more and more studies uh, in other different viral models. So RSV would be an, another one. So it's already showing promise in the lab against a number of viruses. And we just don't have clinical data or clinical trials outside of uh, COVID. We have plenty of trials in COVID, um, but I'm really looking forward to, you know, trials, flu, RSV, you name it. Uh, so I think it holds a lot of promise. Absolutely. And then going back to the hospital. Now, obviously, we could only imagine what the world would look like if everyone would do this outpatient. Um, certainly, if you're uh, vulnerable, you consider yourself vulnerable, vulnerable, you have diabetes, heart disease, 
and an area where it's percolating, you take it prophylactically. If only we would have been giving people Dr. Fauci's 6,000 IU dose a day, especially seniors of vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, having their levels checked. Um, 17 months we've had to to uh, bulk up on this. We could only imagine what the hospitals would look like. Well, but the few people that oh, I'm no, sorry, no, yeah? I wanted to say I let you said we wonder what the world would look like. And Daniel, I have to tell you, we do know what the world looks like when you do that. So there's numerous examples of very forward thinking uh, healthcare ministries. So the best example, and it's available, the study of, of their uh, program is already available, but in Mexico, and in particularly in Mexico City, mm -hmm. that's what they published on, is when they were getting crushed in the whatever second wave back in the winter. So December, they were literally running out of hospitals, uh, hospital rooms, oxygen. You, you've seen that drill before when it really, uh, when a surge comes. And based on the best available evidence and its, its incredible safety profile, they did what's called a test and treat protocol in Mexico across all of their outpatient centers. And in Mexico City, they expanded their mobile testing units and all over the city. And people who tested positive, they did rapid tests. If you tested positive, you got an early treatment kit with ivermectin, aspirin, and paracetamol, which is like a Tylenol. And what they showed when they, re when they reviewed the results of their program is, first of all, you saw the hospital start to empty within two weeks. You saw death started to plummet. And they essentially had like 25% occupancy in their hospitals by like March. And the other thing is when they, when they uh, posted their results, it showed that it's essentially 76% reduction in the need for hospitalization if you treat patients early. That's just Mexico City, which is a huge city. And I applaud the, uh, the, the Mexico um, um, health ministry that did that. It's called the IMSS. The other thing is in states in India, they also did that during that huge wave that hit them, you know, in April and May, a number of states broke free from the WHO. They did the same. And you saw these massive reductions in deaths, case counts and hospitalizations like you don't hear about India anymore in, in a lot of. No, you don't. And, and and I actually did a bunch of charts on this. Typically, over that eight-week window, you'll see a 70 75% reduction in the Gompertz curve. In those states, it was like 98% yep. over that period. Some of the most period. rapid reductions that we've seen in anyone, any health ministries have adopted ivermectin. We always see this with the temporal association with the rapid following of of declines in uh, cases and deaths. But India was like a cliff. Like they literally, because what a couple of states did is one of them for a couple week period, the, the, the health minister basically told every adult in the state, huge states, to take ivermectin for five days. I thought it was just, I, I mean, I was applauding from here. I thought it was great. Um, and the other thing is in Argentina, now news reports from a couple of different states in Argentina that have adopted ivermectin and their health ministries did a similar program. They're also showing huge reductions in hospitalization, ICU and death. I mean, it, outside the U.S., I mean, it's doing really, really well. You just don't hear about it here. It's it's. You don't hear about it, and, and, and they're not trying it. I mean, I'm, I'm glad he told me that about Mexico City, so I don't feel like such a cowboy now. I, I told my friend yesterday, a uh, state senator in Arkansas, he called me up. He said, hey, what advice do you have for the special session? They're doing a special session. The governor wants to, you know, reinstitute masks in some places. And I said, hey, instead of test and trace trying to quarantine an unquarantinable virus— why don't you test and treat? And I actually said in each testing center for the same money, just have someone there giving people, um, you know, a kit. And and it seems like you're saying that was done oh, already. Yeah. 
with great with great success. And and again, like what I think hasn't been done so much is imagine if we would do this before the curve. I mean, this is when you know you already have it. It kind of the are not kind of peaks, and we're desperate, and we do it as reactive. But how about if we did this before the fall? You know, curve the the southern you know Hope Simpson wave is kind of the die is kind of cast there, but. For the, before the fall, I mean, just do this. This is the only thing we haven't done. It truly is shocking. Is it ignorance? How how come I'm a layman and I know basic stuff about this? How you know a lot of these different things have antiviral, anti-inflammatory um, qualities, and yet you'll have a doctor who's been practicing for 30, 40 year, years, and he'll look you in the eye and say, you know, you have a 65 year old on you know male diabetes. Hey, I have nothing for you. If you can't breathe, go to the hospital. What is that? It's, you know, the simplest way I can put it is it, it's the product of the system under which we, it's, it's a product of our health system, right? Which our health system literally really favors a for-profit medicines because, um, and, mm. and really it excludes those that have non-profit. So ivermectin is off patent. It's, it's, it's ridiculously cheap, widely available. Um, it will not make anyone money. And to get a seat at the table, to get approved, um, you need like a team of $800 an hour lawyers to sit down at the FDA yeah. Yeah. or you need a huge trial. And they 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 literally have these barriers where you, everyone demands these massive randomized controlled trials, which is really silly. There's a lot of ways to discover something is effective, um, especially something this cheap and safe. You can use a risk sure. benefit analysis. And mind you, they won't do it themselves. Right. It's not yeah. like the government's offering to do a sample size that well, they so like. So here's the thing. So first of all, that's just the system that we've had. Repurposed drugs do not do well in the U.S. and many uh, developed countries' uh, mm. health systems. There, there's just no one to propel repurposed drugs. And there's countless examples of this over decades. Ivermectin is just the latest story on this repurposed sure. drug front, right? So nonprofit medicines, they get discarded, ignored, and actually actively – fought against. And that's where the story starts to turn really ominous and 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 what has changed me as a physician and as a citizen of society because I became an expert at ivermectin. And I you know I what I've said before to others that when I put up my preprint which was a review of all of the evidence. And I, I reviewed the basic science, the animal studies, uh, the mechanisms, the clinical trials, prevention, everything. I literally thought it would be a world changing paper. And and it was basically ignored and no one it's basically ignored I, I i will tell you even in our circles of conservatives that are definitely more suspicious of the government look at alternative sources i can't tell you how many men on the streets like what's ivermectin no daniel i never heard of that because no one knows what it is outside of people that really just you know obsess about this stuff and it's it's very disturbing because i understand there's the corporate practice of medicine a lot of them work for systems but when i look at it's not just ivermectin it's anything and i want to get to just in our closing minutes some of those other other things they don't want to look at anything and then how you could have a doctor sign an affidavit in court in the late stage a guy in a ventilator they're not offering anything how a doctor could sign an affidavit in opposition of administering ivermectin it literally makes no sense yeah. um and it's very hard not to view that in a very dark way it's very dark what, it's very I yeah, mean, it's, it's it's it just it just doesn't doesn't make any sense. Ivermectin to me. has to disappear in order to make room for the other drugs that are coming in the pipeline, the other oral yeah. antiviral. Ivermectin has a lot of competitors. The vaccine uh, push and policy looks at it as a foe, which is really sad because 
It's clearly we need more than vaccines. I mean, come on now. You know, they, they're admitting it yeah, now. We need more. And ivermectin is a perfect complement. Uh, we think of it as a bridge two and a safety net four. And so really right now you need it as a safety net. And now I know folks who've been vaccinated who are now starting ivermectin because they're really worried about getting COVID despite being vaccinated. And so even more and more people are going on uh, on prophylaxis protocols now. So, so two more quick things. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I wanted to get to the hospital. So obviously, if this would be adopted, we, you know, the hospitals would really empty out. But then we look at the hospital protocol, NIH, zero protocol for outpatient, inpatient. There are two things there. Um, for the antiviral, it's remdesivir. Um, for the corticosteroid, it is dexamethasone. So correct me if I'm wrong. If I were trying to create a greater bottleneck on hospitals, I don't think I could do a better job. So I take a $3,100 drug, the only thing they're approving, and I say, A, I don't see evidence it works, but B, you have to be admitted in order to get it. So you have a lot of maybe younger people, um, subclinical, borderline clinical cases easily could have been dealt with outpatient, but now they have to be admitted to get a drug that, I don't know, does I mean, Dr. Corey, does it work? No, it's and, and this is where the... You know, we're reaching levels of absurdity around these behaviors. I mean, no, literally the, the behaviors, when you look at what the system and what the agencies are doing, they're first of all, they're literally putting themselves in between uh, doctor and patient, telling them how to treat it. And their behavior around what they're choosing and telling people to use is is absolutely absurd. Remdesivir doesn't work. It's, it's not even recommended by the WHO. And you're using an antiviral in the hospital. We all know antivirals work in the first few days of a viral illness. That's the only time it's ever worked. And so it's, mm. it, I mean, $3,000 a day, it's, it's I, I really can't even discuss remdesivir, but, and then the dexamethasone. <laughs> Daniel, the dexamethasone is so, here's my opinion, is that there are legions of people dying from insufficient corticosteroid therapy. The dexamethasone that they're using is a very weak and low dose. Six milligrams is less than I would give an 80-year-old 80, 80 uh, who has COPD or emphysema and is wheezing. It's a very low dose for someone crashing onto ventilators with inflamed lungs. We have, we have now number, probably eight trials now showing that the better corticosteroid, which is methylprednisolone at higher doses is way more effective. And just recently, a study came out showing that 12 milligrams of dexamethasone is a, a strong suggestion that it's better than six. So we know that higher dosing is required, yet these, the, the, the system is using six milligrams because that's what the trial did. Like nobody wants to think themselves through this disease. It's, it's, it's really sad and it's frightening. It's it's monkey see monkey do and whatever they put on that 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 protocol it's 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 truly no it is truly said just in the remaining remaining three or so minutes I want to do a lightning round just to go through some other um, some other therapeutics ideas and obviously it's, I'm kind of mixing and matching some are inherently early some are inherently only going to be administered in a hospital but I want to start with what you guys are talking about a lot which has piqued my interest mouthwashes yeah. for for preventative protocols or early uh, treatment, what type of mouthwash are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, so um, I would. So what's been tested is uh, povidone iodine, which is uh, an antiseptic. Uh, so uh, that that can be used in the nose and gargled in the mouth. Um, but there's a number of them. I, I would really invite them to go to our protocols and really go to our COVID. Um, we have a, a document that uh, Paul Marek has written, which is uh, the guide to the care of the uh, COVID patient. 
And on page 13, we list the mouthwashes that that are vericidal, meaning they can kill the viruses. And the important part about it is it's over the counter. And this disease, right, it concentrates in what we call the nasal and oropharynx. And so if you can sterilize the nasal and, and, and throat passages, you literally are going to decrease greatly the, birth, the viral load, and you'll be much less likely to get more severe disease and to pass uh, and to transmit it. So it, it's a really simple intervention that people could do wow that, that sounds very 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 simple and just to go through a lightning round of all this stuff okay famotidine that's pepsid for for yeah, our audience that has a pathway that it's that's considered to be effective uh in 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 uh preventing the um replication of the virus and so there's a trial coming out i believe it's going to be positive <clears throat> there's been some suggestive trials but that's really a safe, very common, over-the-counter drug, uh, and that can be used. It needs to be higher doses. Higher doses, so more like 40 milligrams? I, I can't remember what the last protocol is. My colleague, Dr. Robert Malone, is kind of the expert on famotidine. I think it's I – I, I don't really want to say it. I think it's like 40 twice a day or, or 43 times a day, but I, I can't uh, – we don't have it on our protocol yet, um, but we're waiting for, more, for the study to come out. Okay, what you do have on uh, the next one, fluvoxamine. Um, So how does that work? Is that together with ivermectin? Can you explain maybe the difference and is one safer, better than the other? <clears throat> Fluvoxamine is quite safe. Um, it's an SSRI. It's an antidepressant. It has rare uh, concerns about it might activate uh, suicidal thoughts. It's extremely rare to happen, but it's something you have to be uh, monitored for, usually in young patients. So we don't really use it in young patients. So. Um, it's generally considered quite safe, especially that we're only using it for about 10 to 14 days. But it has a number of different anti-inflammatory uh, mechanisms, which is perfectly suited for COVID. So I use it uh, in if people are longer, uh, farther along in the disease um, or sicker, mm. I use it in combination with ivermectin for sure. Early outpatient as well as hospital. Got it. So so very good mechanisms, but because it is that antidepressant, it's not the type of thing you're going to – you're going to prophylax. No, no, you, you, it's, it doesn't have uh, an evidence base for prophylaxis. It's for treatment. All right. Um, uh, inhale budesonide. It's another thing I hear a lot of people talking about. Yeah, we, um, we don't have it on there only because we have it as an adjunctive, uh, option. We, we weren't overwhelmed with the study. It did have, it did have a positive result. It did seem to prevent hospitalization, but it was used alone. And we we believe our combination therapy uh, uh, therapeutic protocol yep. doesn't really require that. We don't think there's added value to adding budesonide, but it is an alternative. So if you can't get the medicines that that we have on our protocol, <clears throat> it's it's totally reasonable to use. Proxalutamide. Proxalutamide. Oh, that, if I pronounce that right, that's the game changer. That, that I've never seen a study uh, of that kind of efficacy in anything I've ever studied. I mean, literally, the study in Brazil. Uh, they had 50% mortality in the control group. And in the treatment group, I, I, I think I thought it was something like 3% or now it's 10%. Wow. But it's, it's a massive reduction in mortality. And, and uh, Katajani, Flavio, he's the, um, the PI on those studies. Uh, it, it's incredible. The problem is you can't get it. You can't get it. I tried to you can't get it, even prescription? No, it's, it's kind of a new drug. It's not approved. Uh, my pharmacist, Jeez. I had a really sick patient in the ICU last week. I tried to get it for him, and I couldn't get it. The pharmacist said it was, wasn't available. So, again, you're saying that might be a potential more for late stage, yes. people in trouble. 
um, and you really need something high-powered. Okay, one more I have on my list uh, before we go. Jeez, I can't pronounce anything. Phenofibrate? Uh, it... Phenofibrate. I'm not familiar with the evidence around that. Okay, I mean, these are just things from speaking with some doctors. You're probably familiar with some of them. I mean, I do speak to Dr. Malone, but I don't think I got that one from him. But again, I so so just to sum this up before we let you go, the point is, and, and what I really appreciate about you is you, you've made your name off of ivermectin. That's how I've heard of you or anyone similar to me has heard of you. But nonetheless, you're also willing to just not be stuck on something like like the other side is and be broad about it. And, you know, when everyone's debating, okay, this is 50%, 60%, 70%, but isn't it, just to sum this up more importantly, like anything in internal medicine, it's not about any one thing. It's about a cocktail and treating treating the virus, treating whatever the ailment is, which usually requires multiple things, which will usually get you even greater efficacy. I, I totally agree. I just want to say that point is that, yes, I'm known for ivermectin. But that's not what we're about as an organization. That's not what I'm about as a doctor. What I'm about as a doctor is I'm trying to become with my group and my team led by Dr. Merrick is experts at the disease and treating it. We use combination therapies. Ivermectin is just – we see ivermectin as as, as a huge um, – option to be to really help solve this pandemic and and that's why it's so important but really our protocols have combinations of therapies this disease is really complex and we evolve with the data i mean our protocols will yep. change as we go absolutely i mean it, that's the thing it, it's like our government is stuck in March of last year, where it's like, man, there's just nothing we can do. I mean, you get that, and you're done. And I'm looking at people, and, it, and it's it kills me. It kills me, Dr. Corey. I see people that you could see it coming a mile away. Like the guy's 70 years old. He gets it. He doesn't feel well, but it's not a big deal at that moment. And he's given nothing. Yeah. Nothing. I've had this personally with people I know. And when it started, I didn't know enough about it to guide people where to go. So to sum this up, where could people go? The biggest question is people can't get this stuff because most of their PCPs are like, I don't know what to do. I'm too scared to prescribe uh, Tylenol for you. So you know? on our website, uh, we have a button that's on the front page, which is Get Ivermectin. And we, we try to keep a list of providers we know kind of use our protocols or use the components in our protocols. They're telehealth providers. So you can always try to find someone there. My sense is they're being overwhelmed uh, right now because I don't know how much bandwidth they all have, but I've, now I'm getting reports that some patients aren't able to, to get to those doctors. But um, but they they have helped you know legions, and they're really experienced now at treating COVID and using ivermectin and fluvoxamine. And uh, we don't have proxalutamide, but we in the hospital we use uh, finasteride or dutasteride, which are similar. Uh, those are very available. Um, but anyway, I just want to bring up that proximity report. But that's that's what I would suggest to them. And again, we don't control or police that list. Uh, we can't, you know. We're, but we do know uh, when we hear of people or or doctors that write to us or telehealth providers that uh, uh, that believe in our protocols and support us, uh, we'll put their name on there. But we don't take any other responsibility beyond that. With a very little budget, doing the job that the government, after spending how many trillions of dollars, won't even. <laughs> prescribe this basic stuff it is dr Corey. it is the truly the most bizarre thing i've ever seen in my life and bizarre with devastating consequences but i hope you're able to break through um i'm glad to do my small part promoting this work and please come back and keep us update as uh, as we learn more uh, thanks for your interest and i hope your listeners uh you know get a lot out of it and we save some lives here absolutely take care good luck
So, folks, again, that was Dr. Pierre Corey. He is the ivermectin man, president of Frontline COVID Critical Care, uh, intensivist, pulmonologist. It, it is shocking how a guy like that is not brought into the government, inner circle, NIH, and advise. <laughs> but this is where we are. It's truly crazy. Um, we now have to fight for the right to treatment. And, and speaking of fighting for rights, um, our final sponsor today Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, ADF has been working for 27 years, standing up for religious liberty, the sanctity of life, freedom of speech, marriage, parental rights, and more in America's highest courts. Um, at no cost, if you go to adflegal.org slash CRs and conservative review, you can get your copy of ADF's ebook titled Generational Wins. You'll le learn <clears throat> uh, about their important work over the last number of decades. They represented Jack Phillips. Um, the Colorado Baker and others that are under attack while the courts grant, um, you know, while the courts basically say that you could discriminate against someone for not getting a shot, uh, you know, you evidently uh, as a private entity can't even so-called deny service, not to the person, but even to an event like a gay wedding or something like that. So again, pick up their copy, Generational Wins, adflegal.org slash CR. Um, so folks, I mean, you know, Dr. Corey is not even, I don't even think he's a conservative at all. I don't think he's not political. Um, he's, if he is, he's probably more on the other side. I, I gather he's a New York type of guy. This guy just wants to save lives. I mean, that's all he wants to do. And as you could tell, it's about a lot more than COVID. It's about, and it's about a lot more than ivermectin. I mean, first of all, for COVID, as, as you could see, you know, I like I, I didn't know where he stood on a lot of this other stuff, but he was very bullish when I threw some other drugs at him. You know, often what will happen is you stake out your career on something and then you have, you have the need to trash everything else. But their point is it's not about one drug. It's about treating it, that there's multiple anti-inflammatory, antiviral at the appropriate stage. Some are both, which is very important, like ivermectin really is both and several others have both. Um, famotidine is, is really very, very important. Um, you, you should really keep that on hand because that's Pepsid over the counter. Um, again, do your own research, but Pepsid, I, I believe if you get the, uh, the extra strength Pepsid, it's, it's, a uh, 20 milligrams. The standard is 10. So they recommend, um, I did look it up. Uh, Robert Malone's paper that he was talking about is 40 milligrams, um, and I think it would be twice a day, so it's 80 milligrams in one day. It is a lot, but um, if you do test positive for COVID, that's what you should be doing. Uh, 40 milligrams twice a day, you know, see how you are after two or so days. Um, but it, it it is utterly insane after the trillions of dollars that it takes someone like me to publicize this. It takes one doctor in the ICU um, – and, and again, I mean, it, it, you know, we could talk about how to treat a patient that's critically ill in the ICU, but his main point always was if, if you're testing everyone anyway and you find out they have it, why wait? Just treat them. So to be clear, our government they're not opposed to, yeah, I don't like that drug. I'm a little bit nervous about that drug. Or they, no, they oppose treatment. They oppose treatment at all. It's unbelievable. This is the biggest story of COVID. 
And you can't move off of that because that illuminates everything else. So how do we trust what they're saying on the non-pharmaceutical interventions? How do we trust what they're saying on the shots? Oh, Danny, no, no, no. It's just it's not effective in stopping and spreading it, but it's effective against critical illness. Really? But you didn't say that to begin with. So we know you lied about the first half. What, the other half now is totally pure? And and no, I mean, what we're seeing from the Israeli data more and more from Gibraltar's experience, no, overwhelming amount of those in the hospital there are with, uh, were vaccinated. Of course, America is different. Everyone in the hospital is unvaccinated. Somehow we get a different experience than everyone because we put out um, anecdotal data instead of granular day-to-day data like these other countries did um, so they could lie and say whatever they want. But yeah, there is a lot more going on in COVID. I also do want to touch on the border. It's truly unbelievable. 205,000 apprehensions in the month of July. Unfathomable. I I could have never imagined a number like that. Um, Did you understand that's an annualized flow of of 2.2 million people in the middle of a pandemic? So, so it's kind of similar to ivermectin in the sense that they're so concerned about COVID that we're going to lock down kids, mask everyone, mask people with disabilities, no sensitivity for anything, destroy the economy, destroy life as we know it, because you know, we want to save lives, but then we don't want to treat it. We don't want to look into stuff with very high-powered, promising results behind it, and we'll actually get in the way of people doing it. So it's a similar thing here. We care about COVID so much, but hey, let's wave in millions of people, not just from you know a few countries, but they're coming really more than ever, extracontinental all over the place. So if you're worried about spreading something, I mean, you couldn't do a better job of it. But then again, you couldn't do a better job of maximizing the pain without any gain than what our government has done. I hope this presentation helped you. Um, Again, let me know if you have questions for Dr. Corey. I could pass on to him. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.